I'm going to read the Bible in a moment. Um, the reading is 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. So if you'd like to find that in your Bible or on your app, that would be great. But before we read together, I'm going to pray. So join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you that we can be here together, that we can be in this lovely warm building, sharing together in the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, the Bible, that enables us to know all the things that we need for life. Lord, help us to listen well. Help us to open not just our ears, but our hearts to what you are saying to us today. We pray this now in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further direction. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here today and great to be able to share 
God's Word with you on this important topic. Now, I thought I'd start today by just finding out from a few of the kids, what is your favourite meal? So kids, what's your favourite meal? Put up your hand, I'll get a few of you to answer. Yeah, what's your favourite meal? Spaghetti? Oh, good choice. Tacos. And one more? Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. No, it was soup, wasn't it? Yeah. All great choices. Now, uh, my favourite meal as a kid was spaghetti. We didn't have a lot of fast food in town, although there was King Arroy fried chicken, which was definitely a trademark infringement. But uh, I enjoyed my mum's spaghetti. I still love spaghetti today. Uh, and... Uh, but these days, I'm, I'm on a seafood diet, you know? I, I see food and I eat it. I know, terrible joke, terrible, terrible, but I was using it ironically, so I, I feel like I can get there. But, you know, the church used to ask for RSVPs for things like church life dinners, and they would have a section for dietary requirements on the form. They've changed it now, so I can't do it anymore, but I would always answer this way. I'm on a seafood diet. And, you know, I never once heard anything back. No one ever replied and said, thank you for your great contribution to the world of comedy. It was just, it was just radio silence. So disappointing. So I don't recommend trying that. But we're not here to talk about dad jokes. We're here to talk about meals. And meals are important. Uh, meals are so much more than food. They, they are key to family life. They bring people together. They've been key to village life over the generations. They are a time and place where people connect and belong. They share stories of their culture, their values. And research shows that children in families that share meals together do better in life. They're healthier, they're less stressed, they do better at school, they communicate better, they're less likely to do dumb stuff, or as this article says, they're less likely to engage in risky behaviour. So, kids... When you're finding it hard to break free of the screen and your mum and dad are saying, come to dinner now, and no, you can't have your phone or your iPad at the table, know that it's actually a very good thing for you to be sharing in a meal together. And it's not surprising, given, given the value of meals, that they're also a big deal in the Bible. You could almost argue that the Bible begins and ends with meals. Some of the first words that God says to people are an invitation to eat. And at the other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see a vision of a new world where there's a, a massive, joyful wedding banquet. That one. And, and today we're going to be considering Jesus' last meal that he has with his disciples because that's the last thing he does before he dies. He shares an important meal with them. And that meal has become the background for what has become a sacrament in the church today, the Lord's Supper. And in some churches, it's called the Communion or the Eucharist. Uh, but we, we're going to an account from one of the Gospels first up today. There's an account uh, in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's the night when Jesus will be betrayed, he'll be arrested and sentenced to death on a cross. And we look, we're looking at Luke uh, chapter 22 from verse 7. Then came the day of, the of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This verse sets the scene for us. It's the day of unleavened bread. It's a very significant day in 
on the Jewish calendar. And Luke tells us why it's the day that the Passover lamb is sacrificed. The Passover meal uh, was a, a remembrance event. It's a day they look back uh, to the days when Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And it's described in the book of Exodus. Israel had been slaves in Egypt uh, for many years. God wanted Israel to go free, but Pharaoh, the king, uh, the ruler of Egypt, wouldn't let them go. So God had sent a series of plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh still refused to let Israel go. And so God warned that he would send one final terrible plague on the, the land of Egypt that every firstborn son in the land would die. However, the Israelites were told that each household should take a lamb and slaughter it, ready to roast and eat later on, but uh, they were to take some of the blood from that lamb and paint it on the doorposts, the door frames of their houses. And now on that night, the blood of the, of the lamb meant that God passed over those houses. God preserved the firstborn sons from the destroying angel. But all the houses, without the blood, suffered this terrible plague. And after this, Israel was set free from slavery. And the Passover then is remembered as Israel's great rescue event. So it's an important meal, and Jesus has made plans for it. And he gets his disciples to help make plans, and they end up at the house of a man who likes carrying water jars. But we continue on in verse 14. When the hour came... Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus' words sound so ominous. They speak of his upcoming suffering. And Luke first off talks about a first cup and then he moves on to the bread. And it says, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in the Passover meals, there are typically several cups of wine. Uh, there was flat bread, the unleavened bread. Uh, there were bitter herbs, and there was lamb, which was normally sacrificed at the temple and then distributed amongst the households. But there was a common script that was followed. There were certain words that were always spoken by the host and by the guests. And when it came to the bread, the host of the meal would normally say, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in Egypt. But now Jesus says about the bread, this is my body given for you. See, the Passover was this event of remembrance, but what is new in this instance is that Jesus directs the remembrance to himself. He says, remember me. And then he goes on to talk about the next cup of wine. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this, is the new, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The cup points to what Jesus is about to do, that his blood will soon be spilled on the cross to bring in God's new covenant. For a Jewish person, the life of a body was seen as being in the blood. For example, you could look at 
Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So in this meal, Jesus points to his death, first speaking of his body with the bread, and then later talking about his blood being poured out with the cup. But in between the two symbols was the main part of the meal, consisting of the slain lamb. And I've often been intrigued why the Gospels don't say anything like, you know, don't record Jesus saying, I'm the lamb. Uh, But it's very clear what Jesus is doing here. He's giving them a picture. Either side of the lamb in the meal, you have his body on one side and then his blood being poured out. And it's a very pointed way of Jesus showing us that he's the fulfilment of the Passover lamb. And Jesus mentions a new covenant, which means there's a new arrangement, a new promise. With the death of Jesus, God will deal with people in a new way from now on. Jesus would be the final perfect sacrifice who would truly bring the forgiveness of sins. His sacrifice would open the way for for people from all nations so that they could know God. And it's a much bigger rescue than we see in the Exodus. So that's how the Lord's Supper is presented in the Gospels. But now we'll move on and look at our reading from today in 1 Corinthians. Now the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church in Corinth. Now the church in Corinth could best be described as a basket case. They had a lot of issues, they had a lot of problems. But you know, we can really thank God that they were a basket case. Because from that, we have this amazing letter which tells us what church should be like, what the church of Jesus should be doing. And so the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time in this letter addressing their issues. We can certainly work out what some of the issues, uh, some of the ideas about what were happening there. But naturally, the, the Corinthians understood their situation better than we do. So that's just a reminder that when we approach any passage of the Bible, we need to be careful as much as possible not to read our own ideas into it. And that's not always easy to do. So, for example, we might assume when we see the words in that reading in verse 20, where it mentions the Lord's Supper, and we might assume that they are doing things very much like we do. Maybe they didn't have the little plastic cups, but they were doing a ceremony much like us where they were reenacting the Passover meal. But there are differences here. For one, Paul is addressing actual meals. And I know people talk about our Lord's Supper as being a meal. But I've got to be honest, it's never really done much to satisfy my hunger. It's really more a meal suitable for a a large ant, maybe, (laughs) rather than a grown man on a seafood diet. But the meal in this passage is an actual meal. It looks like it had some formal nature to it, but it's definitely a meal. Now, in the culture of the day, meals were often described as being a fellowship. And so they were kind of like clubs and they were organised by people with common interests, whether it be your business, whether it be philosophy or religion. Uh, There was a lot of wine at the Greco-Roman meals. Bread was also very common. Bread was so common that it would actually be a shorthand way of referring to a meal. And it was common practice amongst the Greeks in their meals to toast to God. They would raise a cup or they would pour out wine into a fire or something like that, sometimes several times a meal, 
And it meant that that meal was not only a fellowship with the people around you, but also a fellowship with that God. So we don't know exactly what's going on in, in Corinth, but what is quite likely that the church in Corinth had adapted the model of Greco-Roman meals to honour Jesus. And so they were raising a cup of blessing to the Lord, and there's some evidence to support that from the previous chapter. So keep that in the back of your mind as you look at this passage. Because Paul doesn't hold back. In verse 17 he says, In the following directives... I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. He's got nothing good to say about their meetings. Their meetings are doing damage, he says. And he goes on in verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Church would have been a very unique kind of gathering in the world of the Corinthians. Rather than those typical fellowships arranged by uh, their common interests, the Corinthian church would have had a real mix of people. Some rich, some poor, some from high class, some from low class. Many different backgrounds. And they're not getting along. So it would seem there's some kind of spiritual elitism happening amongst them. Perhaps it's inspired by their class differences. But when they get together, they're breaking into exclusive groups. They're not sharing their food. So much so that in verse 21, uh, it describes some people as going hungry and others are fully indulging and getting drunk. And that's led Paul to say in verse 20, so that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Paul's point is, you're meeting in the name of the Lord, but the way you are doing it doesn't meet the Lord's approval. The, this meal doesn't have the Lord's stamp upon it. And he goes on further in verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise, despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing and to address these issues, Paul directs them to consider that last Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And so from verse 23, he basically goes on over the account that we see in the Gospels with a few little differences. But in the light of all that, he says in verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Passover, uh, Paul takes the last Passover meal and he, he sort of superimposes it places, it, places it over the top of their practices and he, he gets them to see how these two things line up. And he says, your, gather, your gatherings aren't proclaiming Jesus' death, but the Passover meal was pointing to, to Jesus' death, but your meals are not doing that. Division should not be happening amongst people who understand that Jesus sacrificed himself for them. And Paul does this a lot in 1 Corinthians. He corrects their, their dodgy thinking by pointing them to the cross. To, he gets them to consider their saviour who gave his life for them. Because instead of acting like Jesus, there are many in that church who think they are better than everyone else. 
There's actually a striking parallel back in the Passover account from Luke 22, which we looked at just before. Straight after the meal, Luke tells us that amongst the disciples, a dispute arose among them as to which one was considered the greatest. It's pretty embarrassing. Jesus is about to die and the disciples argue about who is the greatest. And it's very much related to what we see happening in the Corinthian church here. And Paul issues them a serious warning. From verse 27 he says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. What is this unworthy manner that Paul's talking about? Well, it's what he's been addressing so far. It's how they've been treating each other. They're all people for whom Christ died. And that means that no one is superior to anyone else. But they're not acting like that. And so that means they are guilty of sitting against the body and blood of the Lord. They are opposed to what Jesus' death means. And verse 29 begins a serious warning. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, many throughout church history have looked at this verse and concluded that this must mean that the bread is actually the flesh of Jesus. And that we must discern the body of Christ is actually in the bread. But the more you read 1 Corinthians, though, you quickly see that Paul's reference to the body is not about the bread, but it's about the Lord's people. The body of Christ is a big idea in the book of Corinthians. And Paul explores that a lot in the next chapter, using that same word body over a dozen times to refer to the church of Christ. One quick example is from chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. So Paul is saying that those who eat and drink without considering the body, that is the church, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. And this judgment is happening among them. Verse 30 says, Many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is typically Paul's way of talking about death for Christians. Now you might be thinking, well, well this sounds a bit strange. Doesn't the Bible say there's no judgment for those who trust in Jesus? And that's true. You'll see that a lot in God's word. Uh, for example, Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us over and over again in numerous places that if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you don't need to fear God's final judgment. You can be sure and certain of eternal life. But this passage isn't talking about that final judgment, but about God's discipline. This passage warns us that God will sometimes discipline his children to keep them from falling under his final judgment. Now, I don't want to speculate how that might happen and when it happens, but verse 32 tells us why God does it. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, 
we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. This is God's discipline to prevent his people from facing that final condemnation. So instead of dividing, what should they be doing? So then, my brothers, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Well, that's all very interesting, you might be thinking, but what's all this got to do with how we do the Lord's Supper? Well, I thought it might be time for a little bit of history. The Lord's Supper developed quite quickly into a ritual in the early church. We have writings from a church leader in the second century named Justin Martyr. That's an actual photo of him. Um, And it shows that people were starting to view the bread and wine as actually being Jesus' flesh and blood. So I won't read the whole quote, but I've bolded the sections to help make sense to you. It basically says, For we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. Now, Justin Martyr was writing about 100 years after Corinthians was, 1 Corinthians was written. So over the, century, there's, over the centuries, there's been a whole lot of influences that led to the shaping of the Lord's Supper. It's been influenced by philosophy, uh, by a failure to understand the scriptures in their context, but also, sadly, unbelief. And it's very much human nature to doubt God's free grace to us in Jesus and to start relying on religious practices to make us right with God. How the Catholic Church has always described or described it more recently has, is with a process called transubstantiation. They argue that it might look like bread and wine on the outside, but in substance it's actually the body and blood of Jesus. And if you start thinking that the, the bread and wine is actually the body and blood of Jesus, it's not such a long stretch to start thinking that the Lord's Supper is actually Jesus' sacrifice. And then it becomes something necessary for our salvation. So if you've had any experience with the Catholic or Orthodox Church or maybe even some forms of High Anglican Church, the Lord's Supper, or what they call the Eucharist, really is the central thing in each service. And there's a whole lot of rules around it because it's important to your salvation. For example, you need to be in a state of grace before you can have it. So that may mean you need to go to confession before you're ready, ready to even partake in it. Uh, you can't have any bread, uh, any food or, dr- or drink in the hour beforehand. You must revere the bread and the wine. And so that thing there is called a monstrance. And the, in, the, in the middle of it, they put a wafer, like one of the the wafers that they eat in the Lord's Supper, and they believe that that's actually the the flesh of Jesus and that you can revere it in this way. And so you wouldn't even dream of letting a crumb fall to the ground. Now, that may seem strange if that's not your experience, but for many churchgoers, that's what they know. But the Reformation began a movement in the the 16th century, and it was led by a bunch of men who were concerned that human tradition had brought a lot of of wrong practices into the church. And so the Reformation began a movement of going back to the Bible. Two big things they rejected in relation to the Lord's Supper was one of transubstantiation, and the other idea was that the Eucharist was a sacrifice. 
Now, there was variation among the reformers. Some wanted to affirm that Jesus really was present, is present in the bread and the wine, while others said that the bread and wine was purely symbolic. And that's reflected in the variation you see in Protestant churches today. But there are a number of things that churches of a Reformed heritage, of which the Presbyterian Church is one of those, that we all generally agree on. And that is that the bread and the wine, the bread and the cup, they're powerful symbols of Christ's work on the cross. And we believe that those symbols are a powerful reminder of the fellowship of the people of God and that they point to the coming day where our redeemed people will all gather at the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. So you can spend a lot of time talking about history and traditions, but it's important that God's word has the final say, and that's why we spent a lot of time in the Bible today. For from 1 Corinthians, we've seen that when we share the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death. It's the Lord's death that brings us together. It's not our culture or our interests or our political views or our age or our status. The Corinthian church was a mix of of different people and what brought them together was the Lord and his death for each one of them. And just as the Corinthian churches would have been unusual for their diversity, so our church is unusual for its diversity. Yeah, you could be sceptical about that and say we aren't diverse enough, but the fact is you've been joined together with people that you have nothing in common with. But we have one thing that unites us. We are all the body of Christ. And just an important side note, that's why we believe it's totally appropriate for children to be involved in the Lord's Supper. Because it shows they are also part of God's church. The Lord's Supper is a way we can teach our children. At the Jewish Passover, children in the meal, in the Jewish Passover meal celebrations, children were involved. They would be involved in questions and responses. And in fact, God tells Israel in the book of Exodus to be ready to teach their children about it. Now, when I was a kid growing up in church, I didn't partake in the Lord's Supper. It wasn't a tradition I grew up with. I had to look longingly as that bread was passed by, wishing I could just have a taste. And I can imagine for some, of, some people here today, it may feel strange to see kids join in with the Lord's Supper. Many churches have it as a condition that you need to be old enough to understand it properly, uh, perhaps after baptism or confirmation or a profession of faith or membership type of process. And as a parent, it's your choice whether you think it's appropriate for your children to to partake in it. But I hope you can see there are good reasons why we allow children to join in. And if they do join in, it's great to talk with them about what it means. In fact, it's always great to be talking with your kids about Jesus. But what sort of mindset should we have as we approach the Lord's Supper? Well, we've seen that it should remind us that we are united with Christ and with each other. So it's totally a good idea during the Lord's Supper to close your eyes and to confess your sins and examine yourself. But it's also a great idea to open your eyes and look around the room and say, these are the people for whom Christ died. This is the body of Christ 
that I'm sharing my life with and to reflect on how am I treating these people? How am I loving them? How am I serving them? Do I need to reconcile with someone? See, it really isn't essential that we have a ceremonial remembrance meal, but what is essential is that how, is how we treat each other as the body of Christ. When Jesus was on earth, he was involved with many other intriguing meals. He was often criticised for eating with the wrong crowd or accused of being a, a glutton or a drunkard. There are times when he went out of his way to have a meal with someone who was despised by everyone, like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He tells a story about a son who turned his back on his father and throws away everything, but is welcomed back with an amazing banquet. But I want to conclude today with an earlier story than those. It's something from the life of King David recorded in the book of 2 Samuel. King David had recently come to the throne. The previous king, Saul, and his son Jonathan had died in a battle. But David wanted to honour his friendship with Jonathan by showing kindness to any of Saul's remaining family. Now this was quite surprising because Saul had hated David. He'd tried to kill him. And it was actually common practice for kings to try and remove any remaining family members from the previous royal family because they were considered a threat. But David does the opposite. And he finds out that there is a young, uh, young son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth who is still alive, but he is lame in both his feet and he's unable to walk. But David asks that he be brought into the royal palace. And when Mephibosheth uh, meets King David, he bows down and he says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? It gives you a glimpse of what Mephibosheth thought about himself as a lame man. He must have felt hopeless, quite useless in, a, in an agricultural society. But David shows enormous kindness to him and he restores to Mephibosheth all the lands of his uh, grandfather, and the passage tells us that Mephibosheth always ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And I managed to find an actual photo of Mephibosheth on the internet. <laughs> there he is eating at King David's table. But it's a remarkable story, isn't it? And it's a picture of God's grace to us. None of us deserve it. We've all treated God and others with contempt, but God shows us a kindness that we don't deserve. And we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper together shortly, but I hope you'll be reminded through the Lord's Supper that the cross of Jesus means that we are carried to the table of the King, of the resurrected King. And one day we will join together with people from every nation at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. The cross reminds us who we are, that we are hopeless sinners, but we are greatly loved. So now we can show that kindness to others, we can share our lives with each other, and we can proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you you have shown such kindness to us that you have brought us into your family. 
Father, we pray that we would be showing your kindness amongst us, that we would be living as your body, the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, Wade. That was fantastic. We really appreciate it. Uh, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. The first thing that we're going to do is gather uh, the elements together. Uh, as Wade just took us through so beautifully, uh, it's really good for us to remember that by participating in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that beautiful picture that he gave there of... Uh, the you know, former enemy of, of, of David or the possible enemy of David being included in that family is that uh, he had committed faith in David. He really did recognize him as the new king. And so there's an important element here where what we're about to celebrate is for all those who truly do believe. So if you're here visiting with us, we're about to participate in two meals. One is this meal of the Lord's Supper, which is for all those who believe. And afterwards, we're going to have some morning tea and hang out together. This first meal is for all those who believe in Jesus and the second is for all of us to participate in freely. So if you're here visiting with us this morning, I just invite you to stay in your seat and to participate by watching what's happening. But for all those who are believers, we're going to collect the elements now so we can participate in this together. So some, a little bit of rough order. We've got a table down here for, for this section, table there at the back, table there at the back for you guys, and another table here. But feel free to move around. There's, you know, it's not totally all equal sections. Music team... I'm going to invite you guys to, to come up here after you've collected your elements uh, to come up and join me on stage. Uh, but everyone else now will collect the elements and then we'll go through the Lord's Supper together. Go for it. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks. Brothers and sisters, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Right now, as Wade has taken us through so beautifully this morning, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We discern the body of Christ. We come together recognizing the union that we have in Christ as all those who believe share in his same spirit. We come together from varied backgrounds, from different places, but we are united eternally by our faith in Christ and through all that he has done for us. And so we read through these words again. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. As Wade has taken us through this morning, this is idea, this uh, coming in an unworthy manner, really represents two ideas. We need faith in Christ. This is a proclamation of the death of the Lord, but also we come together in the unity and recognition of the relationship that we share with one another through the death of Jesus and our faith in him. And so we participate in this meal together as the body of Christ. And so with that in mind, friends, for all those who believe, take this and eat. And with this cup, which is a sign of the new covenant, which we all together as the body of Christ share in, we remember Christ and all that he's done for us. Good thing I'm comfortable in front of a great crowd. <laughs> Thanks, Wade, for that great sermon. <laughs> All right. We're going to sing together now in that same spirit of unity that exists amongst us, giving thanks for all that the Lord has done. <laughs>